0: Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the bi-weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey
1: Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you?
0: I'm good, how are you?
1: I'm good, you know. We had a little weekend away in Bath this weekend. I've never been before. It was my, basically it was the second anniversary of my father-in-law's passing and so Charles and I were just like, we'll go away for a little break. Also, because even though we're all working at home, like nonstop and everything like that, I feel like we've almost been packaged that, oh, you must be so relaxed because you're not having to commute and things like that. Whereas I feel like completely the opposite, not that I'm craving to go back to the office full time, but having no physical distance between myself and my work setup means that I very rarely feel that I'm fully shut off. I'm fully relaxed. So it was very nice to be in a
0: hotel drinking martinis, like Yeah, it's so important to have a change of scene. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people struggled with that. I mean, obviously, some people do have like a dedicated office and they can just close that door and be distanced from work. But a lot of people have struggled with, you know, how do you actually turn off?
1: For sure, because we're also always checking our email on our phone. Like, I hate
0: that about myself, but I'm still doing it. Yeah, exactly. So I'll check my phone and then get so annoyed when people message me at random hours. <laughs> totally. I shouldn't be checking.
1: No, for sure. And then when it's like, oh, technically, I know I could get back to you. But if I get back to you, you're going to get back to me. And then we're trapped. So yeah, anyway, it was lovely to get away. Um, and I did also just want to say thank you very much to everyone for your feedback from our last episode on Pregnant Then Screwed, where we were talking about, you know, kind of maternity, paternity, parental leave, and the struggles that people face, because it was so interesting to hear your perspectives on that. And basically, I think know that everybody is worrying about the same things, because sometimes you can feel like you're the only person thinking about it.
0: Yeah, I think reading Pregnant Then Screwed has just brought so much of this into a really, really sharp focus. And I don't think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but I am pregnant and I was chilling. Like before I read this book, I really was chilling and not understanding how much of an impact maternity and pregnancy has on women. And I think I was also lured into a sense of security thinking I work for a really great organization. And so not really having financial concerns around pregnancy, but It's crazy, you know, and I was actually talking to some friends because now that, you know, I'm in my second trimester and I'm like jogging, you know, living my life. And then you see how people look at you. And it's like people are so concerned. It's like everybody is concerned before the child is actually born. There's a huge level of concern. Once that child is born, no one's going to care about your child. Right. But when you're pregnant, there's something that happens to people where they feel like, oh, no, you cannot make the right decisions for you. And so people were looking at me really strange. And then like, even some people that know me would say, oh my God, but take it easy. And I'm thinking, okay, I know myself, I've never had anyone kind of question like my training before, but all of a sudden it's like, oh, make sure you take it easy. And I just found that really, really odd.
1: It's weird when you say it like that, because even the idea that people would be saying, take it easy, you know, as a phrase, it's so innocuous, it's so neutral, but it's also like, how crazy you're not actually a, a doctor, B, a running coach. So actually the idea that you would be telling me anything about, you know, something that I am doing for my own mental health, or just because I want to is like, please don't worry about it. I don't need that level of micromanaging in my personal life.
0: Yeah, but it's also strange because it's like, okay, you don't run when you're not pregnant. <laughs> so, you know, I don't see why you're all of a sudden an expert now, especially when it's like, I'm not like running up hills or like doing mm-hmm. really aggressive sprints. It's like very leisurely. And then I had a situation where I was meant to run the Hackney Half. Oh, right. And the company, like when you buy the ticket for the Hackney Half, the company that issue those tickets is called limelight sports I don't know if you know them
1: no I don't I, I've okay. done hackney half before but it's been a while
0: yeah so I meant to run the hackney half and then I email them and I say I can no longer run the hackney half because I'm pregnant I won't be able to do the race when it's scheduled I'd like to have a refund and they respond and say you know you can't have a refund but you can transfer the your place to a friend I found someone to transfer it to and I'm like okay no problem like I'm happy to transfer it let somebody else have the the opportunity and then when I emailed back they're like you can't transfer your ticket you have missed the deadline to transfer your your place there are options for insurance that are available where you know if you're sick and you can no longer run the race you can claim on the insurance and I responded and I said you know why would I not be able to transfer a place that I have already reserved like that place is already available and two, I'm not sick, right? <laughs> this is not a last minute sickness. I'm letting you know kind of five months before the race starts that I won't be able to run the race because of this situation. That is not sickness, right? And so I've been emailing them, like three emails, they've completely ignored me. And and I'm like, whoa, is this literally like, and in the book in Pregnant Then Screwed, what Jolie, who's the author, is saying is that as soon as the stick turns blue, like the discrimination starts kicking in. And so what I'm seeing is that even before the child has arrived, my rights are being taken away from me.
1: Mm, I also think in the context of, say, um, Hackney Half with this particular race, I always find it so interesting because firstly, I think that the races themselves within the UK are so expensive. It's immediately like only if you can afford to pay 50 quid for a race, which is always so interesting to me because when I did used to run a lot, like all of the pacers... You know, all of that kind of stuff, the the infrastructure that facilitates race on the day is all volunteer led. So you're not paying any of those people. What exactly has the 50 pounds or whatever you've paid gone towards? And why are you being so difficult about doing what should be very straightforward and mm-hmm. just sending me my money back? Like exactly. I've paid for something. I now cannot avail of that. My pregnancy is a very legitimate reason for me not being able to avail of it. Instead of you making me jump through hoops as a pregnant woman, just give me my 50 quid. Yeah,
0: it's really, really humiliating. And the, the Hackney half is an expensive race. You know, and I had to, I couldn't do the battery 10 k mm. which happened a couple of weeks ago. And when I said to them, I won't be able to do the race, this is a the situation. They were like, oh my God, congratulations. Here's your money back how nice super cool the organization that runs the race for battersea but what i'm experiencing with the hackney half which is a more they have way more money actually right because the race is a lot more expensive yeah i've been really really disappointed so i even had to call the u.s because i realized that the customer service has actually run out of they've outsourced it to some american company so i called up that u.s company yesterday to kind of say they're basically ghosting me you know i would like to get a refund <laughs> if you work at limelight sports right if you are involved in the hackney half in any way and you can advise me on how i can raise an official complaint and how this can be escalated and i get my money back i would be really grateful but what they're doing is really really absurd and i know that there are people that run races all throughout their pregnancy and so that's why i'm like this is not something that something that prevents people from running and that's why I felt really uncomfortable with them trying to push me down that insurance route it's just based on like my assessment and kind of where I am like I'm not going to be able to run half a marathon when I'm eight months pregnant. (laughs) What
1: you lazy thing well I also think sometimes it speaks to the actual human connection like A couple of years ago, obviously, as I said, it's um, my my father-in-law, the anniversary of his passing yesterday. But a couple of years ago, the summer that he passed away, Charles was scheduled to do this race. It was a cycling race, and I'm not into cycling enough to remember the name of it. Basically, the idea was I think that you cycled across Europe or something like that, like transcontinental or something like that or trans Pyrenees. I'm not sure. But anyway, the whole thing was they said to you every single turn Once you're at this point, there's no refunds. You can't do this. Like it was the inaugural thing. We won't be doing refunds. We cannot facilitate refunds. They were super explicit on it. And I was Charles's obviously emergency contact if anything went wrong during the race. Anyway, it became very clear. Naturally, grief and everything. Charles was not in a position to do this race. So I sent an email to them bearing in mind that they had no correspondence from me at all. They just had my name as this kind of very arbitrary. Oh, this is this person's emergency contact and I just said the situation is as follows my father-in-law has passed away quite suddenly Charles won't be able to take part in the race can we just be removed from the correspondence because obviously it's like salt in the wound almost on top of everything else that's going on they sent me a full refund within about two days and the loveliest email saying we're so sorry thank you for taking the time to let us know thinking of you basically and it's like oh there we go a human being within an organization who is giving another human being like recognition. Thank you.
0: And that's why this stuff that I'm going through with limelight sports is really shocking because I thought, okay, maybe their agents are really busy because so much is going on, right? Maybe something's going on with their agents. And so they can't get back to me. So then I went on LinkedIn and I added the head of customer success and I emailed, I messaged her about the situation thinking, oh, this is somebody that can, you know, jump into, into action. Because they're the head of customer success. And um, this lady did not reply. I don't know if she's seen the message, but I haven't heard from her either. And so when I spoke to the lady in the US about this and she was saying, oh, is there still an option for you to transfer the place to a friend? I said, why would I transfer a place to a friend when I want to completely separate myself from this organization this organization is not aligned with my values you suck Mm -hmm. why would I then put myself my friend in a situation where they could have a problem and they could end up you know in the kind of same situation I'm in or in a similar situation I'm in where they're trying to communicate those issues and they're completely ignored why would I do that
1: it's really weird. It's weird. I'm doing a module at the moment called Organizational Behavior. And do you know sometimes when it's like we said this on the podcast before about various issues,
0: but sometimes when you take your rose tinted glasses off, it's impossible to put them back on again. It's always impossible to put them back on. And and I and I really have started to think about this you know after reading this book which we do recommend that people read and I think that it's not just a book for pregnant women I think everybody should read this right because pregnancy is just a part of life and someone you know or someone you manage will be going through this and you this book is a great way to kind of figure out are there other ways that I can support them or show them some compassion right Before reading the book, my rose-tinted glasses were all on. This was vibes. The first thing I did was book a maternity photo shoot. My husband was like, you are not serious, Jules, right? I booked my maternity photo shoot with an award-winning maternity photographer. That's how much this was all about vibes for me. I was completely ready. And then I'm reading on the internet and I'm like, oh, my God, I need to do a newborn baby photo shoot as well. (laughs) Then I read pregnant, then screwed. And it was like, oh, my God, you know what? You need to get yourself into gear because the world is actually going to turn completely against you now.
1: Well, and that's so key. I think, you know, just weirdly, it always seems to be one of those things where suddenly someone you know is pregnant, then everyone you know is pregnant. But on our way back from Bath, we were listening to the How to Fail podcast with Elizabeth Day. Have you listened to it? I'm a big fan. I really like her and I like her writing. But anyway, I was listening to the episode with Marion Keys, who is one of my favorite people, obviously do not know her at all. But like <laughs> such a, an affection for her. One of her failings or one of her failures she mentioned was the, the failure to have children. And she was very kind of clear about how she was framing it. You know, she's saying, I don't think that it's a failure of other people if you choose not to or if you're unable to. But it's just something that, you know, I always thought would happen. And she basically tells this beautiful anecdote and it's really worth checking out the episode. But she tells like beautiful anecdotes about her and her husband who were like so sure that it would be a thing that they had like names for these kids. They would be joking about like the personality traits of these kids. And I think that that is in the context that you've just said there like before reading pregnant then screwed that you're kind of thinking about it in the context of oh my god like baby Ray bans <laughs> exactly baby Converse, yes. you know and you're so psyched for all of that stuff like my husband says all the time oh I can't wait to be a latte dad like yeah. baby you know hammock whatever sling on latte in hand he's heading down the park um But actually, and maybe it's a blessing that you don't know how grim the reality can be.
0: Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) Let's not kill everybody's vibe. Mm. It's not that the reality is 100% grim. It's just that there are so many obstacles, really real and really tangible obstacles that people will dismiss, gaslight you about, not show you any support for. And because, you know, in the beginning or when you think about potentially having a family you think about the fun things and you don't take those things into account it can be such a shock to your system that all of a sudden before before pregnancy and after right before pregnancy people view you as you know independent fun adding so much value can make your own decisions empowered going places and then as soon as you get pregnant it's like people's expectations of you change regardless of where you are in your life like it doesn't matter if you are having a kid young you know I'm not 19 years old Mm -hmm. but I do feel like people feel they have an agency over me and my message today is back up off me (laughs) you you have no agency over me she's had it guys I've had it (laughs) (laughs) But
1: it is, I guess it's a reminder to just keep talking about those things and be aware of them. And as you said, even if you aren't pregnant or intending to be pregnant or want children at all, this may be a book that's worth reading anyway because it is stark. It's not just pregnancy that disenfranchises women in the workplace. Um, It is, unfortunately, just being a woman. And there's a hierarchy to that where, you know, women of different minorities are further disenfranchised,
0: but that's also what I really like about the book, right? And I messaged the author on LinkedIn and I said, This is something I really appreciate about the book, that it is intersectional. It's not like she leaves it until the end or she dedicates a couple of pages to this. Throughout the book, she references the fact that there is a hierarchy. Even with these experiences, there is a hierarchy. And, you know, women from working class backgrounds or women from minority groups experience this exact same thing but to a uh, more extreme degree so it's important to remember that and I like the fact that you did that
1: yeah this is our little like book club recommendation um definitely check it out I think that it's a good reminder as to how to broach these kind of conversations as well and you know as you said not to be like negative about the idea of pregnancy or maternity leave or parental yeah. leave or whatever but just to be more armed with the facts because when you can negotiate Based on facts, Mm -hmm. hopefully it puts you in a better position overall. And certainly Mm -hmm. there are people that I know who, you know, are maybe the first in their organization to take maternity leave because it's a startup or it's a younger workforce or whatever the case may be. No one wants to be the guinea pig of like, oh, okay, well, we didn't do it very well for Jules, so let's try and do it better for Phoebe, this kind of thing.
0: But Give yourself time. I don't know. It's so complicated, isn't it? It's like... It's very complex. And also, we shouldn't forget that it's not just women. You know, men are severely impacted by our maternity policies or just a lack of support. And if you think about something like childcare, and on the episode last week, we did mention that, you know, childcare in the UK is second most expensive in the world, right? And so... That puts a lot of pressure on families. The fact that, OK, yes, you've got, in theory, up to 12 months leave that you can take. But a lot of it is dependent on what your organisation is going to provide you. And men's statutory leave is only two weeks, right? It's two weeks at statutory pay. And so men don't get to spend as much time with their families as they would want, unless you can afford because there are a bunch of tips that she puts into the books around like, oh, yeah, these are things that you could do. But a lot of it is only if you've got the financial infrastructure to kind of take care of yourself and take that one month leave. Whereas a lot of people can't afford to miss a paycheck. No,
1: understandably. And it's one of those things as well. When my husband and I were talking about it, we're talking about, oh, you know, how do you stagger that best? If you want to get the, if you really want to maximize the value that you're getting from it, like you could maybe start, you know, take the paternity leave then and give it a little while. Again, for clarity, I'm not pregnant, but it's something that like we, we have discussed and we kind of look to as best as we can plan around. And I was like, the thing is, even if you've got that kind of where women took just the six weeks and then went back to work if your partner isn't able to be at home with you and if you don't have family around you in the immediate aftermath of giving birth you are immediately postpartum at home on your own with a newborn child struggling to Mm -hmm. have a shower or make a cup of tea or do you know any of things particularly if you have a c-section which Mm -hmm. is literally you know basically gastrointestinal surgery where you probably need to rest for that as well it's kind of because women have been just quote-unquote getting on with it for so long we've now assumed that getting on with it is just what you do and that we don't deserve to expect any more than that
0: yeah because it's your lifestyle choice mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so no, we do really appreciate the feedback on that you know we have We've had our podcast for nearly two years, and we've never really discussed like pregnancy or maternity, right? So it's interesting that it is something that just doesn't come into focus for you until you're facing it or you're thinking about it, like you're settled and you have somebody that you'd like to start a life with it's It's like it's a black box, and it's strange because it's so normal, but it's just it's such a black box. So, yeah, so we do appreciate you, you know, listening to the podcast and sharing your feedback on that. And
1: also, because I didn't say it and obviously I knew already, but congratulations.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. At this point, all I need is my money back from Limelight Sports. So <laughs> <laughs> if if you want to congratulate me, you know, at them on, on Instagram or reach out to at Jules and Phoebe and let us know how I can get this resolved. It's the principle, okay? It's the principle, yeah, it's not right.
1: That's the that's the price of a pair of baby Ray-Bans.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it's so crazy. I just feel like the world, there's a couple of things that I've seen over the last couple of weeks that have just really irritated me. The main thing that's irritated me is this whole thing around the NHS being too reliant on foreigners. Yes. Yeah. Is that the word they use now, foreigners? So
1: I, I'm i going to hand this back to you because I feel like I was saying to you before we started recording, I had two assignments to you last week and I honestly don't know anything that's been going on in the world. I'm like dipping my toe back into everything now. So I did see that and I unfortunately saw it on Instagram, so it's not even anything legitimate that I saw it on. But I, I saw that some kind of announcement had been made about basically reducing the reliance that the NHS has on non-British hospital workers
0: yeah so basically the background is this lady Dame Dido Harding is running to be essentially the CEO of the NHS and she's not qualified she is one of the people that messed up the whole track and trace situation in the UK initially and um she came out, she did an, some press, and she basically said that one of her main objectives is to make the NHS less reliant on foreigners, right? And people were really offended by this, especially in a, in a pandemic where foreigners have kept this country going, foreigners have kept this country safe. I just thought, wow, so you, you have no vision you can't lean into your values. You've got, you have absolutely nothing to say. So what you can do is this dog whistle. And it's all about, you know, British doctors for British people type of thing. She might as well have said something like that, right? She's going deep into nationalism with this. And I just thought, you know, if you were to actually disappear all the foreigners from the NHS today, there would be no NHS. Yeah, yeah. And it's a complex issue, right? It's partly because there is no funding like the uk there's like seven thousand medical school places right in the uk so the uk doesn't you know we, we don't aggressively invest in training up doctors in the uk right and then also we don't pay nurses in the uk all we do is clap for them so there isn't like a long line of like british people that like i want to work for the nhs the nhs is a vocation working for the nhs in any capacity, is a vocation. And I just thought to myself, how does this add up? You know, it really is just a dog whistle because you've got no plan. It's not like you're saying, you know what, we're going to take medical school places from 7,000 to 70,000 over the next five years and et cetera. Like that's something that I could get behind, right? I, I don't disagree with that as a, as a strategy, but to then kind of act like less reliant on foreigners, it's like, you know, doctors from other countries can go anywhere, they choose to come to the UK and, and and it's a service that they're providing. And so I just found it to be, I was so offended by that.
1: I think going back to the rose tinted glasses from earlier, I mean, firstly, what kind of rose tinted glasses do you have to be wearing to make a comment like we want the NHS to stop being overly reliant on foreigners to realise you are not offering a compelling package?
0: But it's compelling for people because, you know, it, it's, the whole foreigner thing, and I, I, I find the foreigner. What is a foreigner when it comes mm. to the NHS? Because I've got friends who are doctors who work for the NHS who are not white, and get treated really badly by British people coming, white British people, right? Who get told, "I don't want to be treated by that person. I don't want to be treated. I want a, a white doctor." White doctor. Who you know, women doctors in the NHS who get physically also attacked by patients and so that foreigner thing is a very strange one because you know I'm British but then people would still kind of treat you like you're a foreigner throughout your whole life and so I just felt that it justifies that attitude of people that go in use our NHS services that we all pay for and we all contribute to and feel like they can bully harass etc Doctors who are not white?
1: Yeah, so that's essentially you summed it up there. What I was going to say is you are not offering a compelling enough package to healthcare workers. Like, as you said, people who are working for the NHS invariably are doing so because it's a vocation. We are not allowing a good work-life balance. They are not being paid as well as they should be paid. So the breathtaking arrogance of saying, oh, well, you know, we need to be less reliant on foreigners. Foreigners have, at this point, foreigners, quote-unquote, but you know what I mean, have enabled the NHS to keep going because people are flocking from the UK and from Ireland are flocking to places like Australia where if you work in healthcare, you can actually have a life, you can Mm. afford to live, and you are – I think it's something like max um, hours you can work is 24 hours. You can have a 24-hour shift or something like that, which is significantly lower than specifically the U.K. in this instance. Hmm. Um, yeah. And it's it's a lack of gratitude, I almost think, which is, which is the pillar of the NHS that we never want to talk about. We want to do some clapping outside our front doors in the midst of a global pandemic. We don't want to pay people what they deserve to be paid. And we don't want to acknowledge explicitly that we owe a significant debt of gratitude to the people who get up and do what is fundamentally quite a thankless task most
0: of the time. Yeah. And, you know, it's really unfortunate, right? But I think it's all part of this larger Tory plan to uh, defund the NHS. You know, if this, this lady ends up getting that job and she's the boss of the NHS slowly and surely you'll see kind of rules come into play that might make it difficult rather than saying oh you know what visas and what rules can we have to actually make it easy for you know these doctors to come to the UK you you'll see things like that getting reversed and then if we don't have that talent the NHS will become more and more dysfunctional it's already declining it's going to become more and more dysfunctional and eventually will be at the point where the nhs is not fit for purpose and then what happens because people like dido harding do not rely on the nhs and so i feel it's just going to a really dark place <laughs> like if you are if you rely on the nhs if you are somebody that needs the nhs you know so for example i wasn't feeling well And then I like call up the midwife line and I'm like, Oh, you know, I'm this, this is what I'm feeling. They're like, yeah, don't call us. Like that's a (laughs) non-issue. And obviously, you know, it being the first time that I'm pregnant, I'm like, no, I really want to check this out. So book myself to go to see a private GP, book myself to go and have a private scan, like 350 pounds later, I was like feeling great. Like feeling like, okay, everything's fine, but not everyone is in the position to do that. And so I personally feel like the NHS is is important and I think we're getting to a point where like already the services have been completely pulled back but it's going to get worse over the next 10-20 years and what does that mean for British people?
1: Well I think the propaganda is so strong with it that you know you can keep flogging this kind of best of British mentality and think that oh yeah well you see once we get rid of once we get rid of those foreigners and yeah. the NHS is just full of British healthcare workers oh, you won't believe it you won't believe it be, it'll be back to World War Two. yeah you know, like as in post-World War VE Day which is another thing that the UK are obsessed with celebrating yeah. right? what,
0: what, part of the Windrush, part of the reason for, you know, people um, from Jamaica coming to the UK was to work in the NHS
1: well yeah, because they were actively encouraged to Yes, and then exactly. someone changed their mind somewhere along the way. And now you've got the Windrush generation. Yeah,
0: now you've got the Windrush generation. And so, you know, it's very difficult to find a time in modern history where um, you didn't have people that were quote unquote foreign contributing to, to the NHS. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, I was speaking to someone and they were saying to me, yeah, like they voted Brexit because they wanted like more investment in British people. And so they were like, oh, yes, but, you know, of course, yeah, people from Europe, they bring a certain level of like skill and talent, but he said, oh, it'll be completely fine because now they'll be investing in education, they'll be investing in health. I said, really? I said, is that what's going to happen, right? And obviously that's not happening. And it's problematic because people like Dido Harding and a lot of members of the Tory party and Labour Party and people in the UK always try to make this about race and about creed right oh this person is foreign this person is not foreign it's like guys this is actually about class mm. and there was a whole thing where this mp was saying that white privilege or talking about white privilege is um leading to the systemic neglect of white working class students yes i was reading this earlier today and i was like oh here we go it's similar to kind of what dido is doing where it's like guys white working class students are neglected this is a real issue and it's about class.
1: And also I think that it's a very nifty kind of dog whistle. Again, when you tell parents, oh, well, your working class children are obviously being neglected at school because we're so busy pandering to yeah. the black children. Like this is this is the inference here in this message. And then there was actually a really interesting thing that I was reading about it, which is like the UK are so keen to segment you know your your traveler your roma your gypsy people say from white when it suits them but because the those communities are some of the most kind of underprivileged and um educationally neglected in the uk but the second it's advantageous to be like oh you see white children are suffering then you immediately group all of those communities who are being disenfranchised again the traveler the roma the gypsy communities you group them back in with all of the like, quote unquote, white working class children to say, oh, they're being neglected because of all of this focus on privilege. But do you think that your working Mm. class children are being privileged or being overly privileged? Mm. And the thing is, as well, and this is like the power of language, right? White children exist, but working class is not just white. Do you know what I mean? Like working class also captures, it captures people from lower socioeconomic groups, which often are non-white families. But again, these white families are being encouraged to to pin their misfortunes or to lay their misfortunes at the feet of non-white Working class.
0: Who have no power.
1: (laughs) Who have no power. Because God forbid that we would hold the Tory government to account. Yeah. you have cut funding for, you know, Sure Start centres and pregnancy clinics and after school clubs and education as a whole. They've been severing that, hemorrhaging funding into Boris Johnson's revamp of 10 Downing Street. But it's never their fault that... Things like this are happening and it's a really like it's a very dark place to send your mind to because you have to accept that actually people are being scapegoated but jesus
0: yeah and it's a, it's a serious point that you've made actually because you know white working class is considered an identity and no matter how many generations in you are you know you are black british like you're not part of the working class, right? Or Mm -hmm. um, you are, you know, British Indian. Like, it's, it's it's a strange kind of thing that people from ethnic minority backgrounds are grouped by their ethnicity rather than being included in the broader conversations around class.
1: Classism permeates pretty much every social interaction in the UK. We're obsessed with class. But class doesn't get to permeate into non white communities you only get to be black British. you're yeah. not allowed to be black british working class like yeah, that only...
0: black british and middle class
1: yeah oh absolutely sorry i'm using I'm running with the the working yeah. class because of this particular educational kind of aspect, but yeah, you're yeah. absolutely right. we don't use those class categorizations in fairness, but then
0: what it does is lead to that kind of like rage. <laughs> that, you know, a lot of these people have where they'll see someone. I remember at university when I had a friend from Saudi and first of all, me and my own friends and we went to Warwick. So we were in Leamington Spa and then we had like some chavs basically and I don't know if chavs is a politically correct term. So educate me on that guys. But the chavs basically started like verbally harassing us, like using racial slurs and yeah, just harassing us. You know, and saying to us, "Go back home, go back to your country." Right? And we were like, "What? Well, we're from London. This is our country." We're so young that we didn't know. We didn't know we weren't. I didn't even know that I wasn't from the country until mm-hmm. these tabs put me in my place. And then I had a friend who it was a really sad situation where from Saudi had a brick thrown at him in Coventry.
1: <gasps> oh my god!
0: And then had like to have you know surgery on his eye and everything. And it's like you send your kid to school and this is how they're being treated. And I found that really odd because I'm like, wait a minute, are you throwing, like in Leamington Spa, last I read, had the largest divide between rich and poor in the United Kingdom. You have really affluent families um, in North Leamington and then you've got some poorer families in South Leamington, right? And then obviously some underclass Mm -hmm. families as well, right? And when I read that, I thought do those people that are like throwing bricks at students and, like harassing students that they perceive to be foreign are they throwing bricks and harassing the people from North Leamington like why do they feel that they can harass us if we didn't go to the university you wouldn't be in our place mm-hmm. this is well, nothing have, to do with us
1: we have if, no crossover but you've been taught to believe that, that it we're is. taking
0: your place yeah and somebody gave us a handout to take your place. And it's like, no, the majority of ethnic minorities, let's say, you know, at universities like Warwick are international students.
1: Which means they're paying twice what you pay. <laughs> no,
0: more than twice. <laughs> like a, a lot more. It's like thrice, right? And so I just found it, I just find that whole kind of logic like crazy. And so I feel like you don't have enough white people drawing attention to the fact that this is a comparison that doesn't make sense. And mm-hmm. we should stop.
1: And a comparison that holds no value longer term because if you pull those resources from the other underserved communities, that still won't that still won't be enough. Do you know what I mean? There was a thing but I read- it's an
0: illusion of resource because yeah. we do sort of um, like at least we collect data on race in this country. So we'll know like, oh yeah, what tick, which box are you? And I know some European countries, they don't do that. So I think it's good that we do have some information and there's a framework, but we don't allocate resources specifically, public resources specifically based on uh, people's ethnic background. So they Mm -hmm. don't say, oh, the Somali community are going through this, let us give them this. This is not how budgets are allocated. And so you have this whole thing around like resources and I'm like,
1: do you know what? It's so interesting that you say that about the illusion of resource. Obviously, I will always take the opportunity to shoehorn the royals in wherever I can. But it, I was just thinking about it as you said it, because before we started recording, we were talking about the unveiling of the Diana statue. And I often think whatever I see written about Meghan Markle, it will often try to allude to her to the house that she and Prince Harry have bought in Montecito, right? Which I have seen vary in terms of the valuation of that house from 14 million, which I believe is the actual price, to 42 million to 142 million. And that will be in like whatever Daily Mail article that you're reading. And people will be seething over it. They're absolutely furious that she and Prince Harry have been able to afford to buy this house. And I think what is going on that you don't hold the royal family to the same standards. They are literally living on your dime, particularly, you know, in a context where tourism, they haven't brought in any money for tourism. And actually the way that they have behaved about this whole Meghan Markle and Prince Harry situation, their Q rating, which is their kind of positivity score, has has really dropped significantly globally. So I don't think that they will ever pull in as much money from a tourism perspective as they did up until this point, like they could have had a good thing. And I just, it's interesting to me because as you said, this illusion of resource means that it's like, no, it's okay when something that is quantifiably British and good and, you know, belonging to the crown does it. But if somebody outside of that institution or what we perceive to be the right class does it, that's when it's hugely problematic. I just don't
0: get it it's such a deep-seated thing right and i guess you know me saying that you know i think we do need to see more white people kind of speaking up about this and you know i think those people are even silenced like if you try to have a logical argument and i think prince harry has tried to do that with everything that's going on in the royal family he's tried to use his platform and his privilege to you know highlight the fact that there is institutional racism highlight the fact that you know we all know all of the things that he's tried to highlight and it's like they've completely discredited him right in the british media right Oh my gosh. And there was
1: actually even something about this at the weekend. I think it was in the Times or the Independent. I'll have to clarify. But like, where supposedly, because, you know, Meghan Markle was such a harpy that within the doors of the palace, you know, William was like, we've got to deal with this. And that's why William drove the separation of the two offices, the Cambridges and the Sussexes. And that it was written as a quote in this article that the perception was that Harry was already damaged goods, so he and Meghan were welcome to each other. And the word damaged goods was used. And I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Are we supposed to believe that heads together and all of this bullshit about mental health that Prince William is talking about, when he will happily be quoted in an article with inference to his brother being damaged goods, even though his brother is speaking openly about mental health and therapy and the importance of it. No, I can't. No more can I get behind the supposed work that Kate Middleton has been doing on this, the integral first five years of a child's life. You've been working on this study for 10 years and nothing's been published. If, you know, maternal health and postnatal health is so important, why did you offer no obvious support to your sister-in-law when she was being dragged through the press Post pre-, pre and post pregnancy yeah like
0: yeah because sometimes things get out of control and it could have been like oh you know what we weren't aware that you know this coverage was racist we're not aware that we spoke really differently about Megan v Kate in the same circumstances that like, we weren't aware right mm-hmm. but then you're like no you guys were aware because it, now that you wanted them to leave and they've left and it's like Megan is not coming for the royal for the unveiling of the Diana statue and then it's like they're livid and it's like what is it
1: that you want and it's funny that you say you know sometimes you'll get shut down when you are talking about it because I've been blocked by people that we know and like obviously oh really yeah and I and I obviously like talking about the the royals and Megan and everything like that um but I also do just more generally on Instagram like talk about political issues that I think are important to me and you know like I'll share things that I think are are relevant and I've had messages from people that I know who and I know maybe quite peripherally and they'll be like do you not think it's so condescending to speak about people of color as a monolith the people of color that I know would never want to be spoken about in this way and I remember getting back to this particular guy who sent that to me and I was like um A, well, like, to be honest, it's just a a tweet that I'm resharing. I do think there's merit to it. Like, work as an ally is always ongoing. But interestingly, in telling me that I am speaking about POC as a monolith, you are speaking about POC as a monolith because you're saying the people of color that I know would never want to be spoken to about this. And this guy lost the plot. He was like, that's not what I was saying. You know, you've misunderstood, all of this kind of stuff. about other people block me that, like, I move in the same social circles as. And obviously, like, it's not the be all and end all to me. It doesn't, it has very little impact on yeah. my day-to-day life. But it's an awkwardness where it's like, you know what? I don't even think of myself as being the most outspoken person going. But obviously, the small amount of that, I perceive that I do is too much for you which makes me think how much of an echo chamber do you really want to be in
0: well it's not even about the well yeah I think that is the point around how much of an echo chamber do you want to be in obviously people can curate their social media as they like if somebody blocks me I'm happy because it's good to know good riddance to bad rubbish I'm not interested in your in being you in your universe anyway but I think if we compare that to um you know and we haven't we have moved to a bi-weekly schedule now right and so you had the situation with um uh, Meghan and Harry announced that they had their baby girl and they announced her name Lilibet and people exploded and you saw you know a friend of mine sent the a whatsapp picture that was like the 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 image like his uh, his colleague's image on their whatsapp and it was basically like a racist reference to to Lilybeth's name. Um, And then obviously you've got all these like high profile people. Uh, One of the editors that I think it was a Telegraph. Was it a Telegraph that was fired? Yes, I believe so. Because, uh, you know, of her racist back and forth with this lady. I'm not even going to say her name, but I was like so shocked by one of them because they said, they came out and I I don't know if they apologised or half apologised, but they said one of the points they made was that I have children of colour. Oh
1: my God, yes. (laughs)
0: And I was like, what colour are they? Because she's talking about them like they're crayons. Like, who says I have children of colour? It's so weird because... Even saying the people of colour I know, I find really strange. The only time I ever use that term is when it's like a general term and I'm trying to include Mm -hmm. as many people in it as possible, right? If I'm speaking about black people I know or Asian people I know, like you know i'm quite specific let alone if i'm talking about my own child so i have children of color and so that's why when people say the people of color i know it, it it's a non-point
1: mm-hmm. because
0: the people you know might be toxic
1: oh totally and it, you know just to contextualize the the tweet and question that i had shared was <laughs> it's so innocuous reminder to white people you will continue to mess up re-racism um i oh, sorry re-racism so continue to be teachable open to correction from POC and vigilantly monitor yourself for defensiveness and white fragility. You never arrive as an ally. You must continually practice allyship. And it's like, what are you hearing from that particular tweet that you need to message and be like, by the way, do you think that this could be considered patronizing to people of color? Like,
0: Why would it be patronizing to people of color when it's not even referring to people of color? The subject... Is, is one people? Color. The subject is you.
1: <laughs> what have you heard from that? Like, <laughs> please block me. Oh my god, just gosh. block me. Yeah. So
0: anyway, it's yeah. just. But I think what's sad. What I what I deduce. I haven't used that word in a long time. I think I used to write in my essays. What I get from all of this is that you know, unfortunately, I think that it's great that we now have a language around these things. We have we we know what microaggressions are, which I didn't know when I was in school. We have, you know, this language around, like, fragility. We understand, like, there is a thing called white privilege. There's a thing called white supremacy. But I think what's unfortunate is I think that it's really, it's actually taking us backwards, where there is so much resistance to it that, like, people who who do have power seem to be so kind of threatened and like angry about it and rather than this moving us forward it seems like something that is being used as leverage against minorities.
1: Totally I couldn't agree more because I think that what's also happening is now that there's an expectation that we should neutralize the message and make it as palatable as possible so that nobody who maybe does need to work on their egalitarianism or their openness you know, or their progressiveness mm. be offended. Like people, again, that I know in my circle who are seething about the idea of people using pronouns in their Instagram bios. And it's like, well, why does it bother you? And it's like, why? oh, it's just virtue signaling, just the woke left. And it's like, but why does it bother you? I know mm. the what I you're telling me what you think it is. You think it's virtue signaling, but can you elaborate on why it's an issue for you? Because my pronouns are she her that's really? it that's the extent of it i don't need to think about it any and if it normalizes it for somebody who uses they them or who just wants to put their pronouns and it and it has a bit more gravitas for them if it normalizes it by like cis heteronormative people like myself doing it then i'll do it it costs me nothing like you're talking yeah. about the woke left in the snowflake generation, but you are the one acting like a snowflake because you are livid that I'm not treating POC as a monolith and that I've put my pronouns in my bio. Yeah. It's embarrassing.
0: It's, it's really, yeah, it is really, really unfortunate. And I think that as I've just been kind of, you know, looking at it and there's a lot of data showing that, you know, white people especially do not support BLM. Black Lives Matter as a principle I think like it's not something that people support anymore and I think that there are also like ethnic minorities that are not supporting like don't support Black Lives Matter people have a lot of issues around pronouns people have a lot of issues around transgender and like non-binary people and so there was a lot of talk but like I think exposing the issue has in in a way exposed these groups. And I think it's put them at more risk. Like people can get onto public platforms. Like when I saw that initial conversation happening around Lilybet, where they were basically, and I don't want to go into it if you haven't seen it, you know, but when I saw that, I thought it was a direct message that someone had leaked. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, no, they are actually just posting this on Twitter. Like that's their banter. And so that's their banter that they can post on Twitter. What do they say at home? Yeah. Totally, you know, and like yes, you've got these children of color, these right? mythical
1: children of color,
0: mythical children of color. But w- what are you teaching them? Yeah, how do they feel about themselves? Really, you know, if this is the banter that their mum is making online, and so I do kind of worry that um, yeah, it was all like a big flop.
1: We didn't have the temerity to see it through. I think that that's what I think about. And I'm hoping that, you know, we talk enough about Gen Z and I think that they are phenomenal. So I think that yeah. I hopefully they will be the ones to carry us through. And what I now have to accept is that as a 30 year old woman, my role is potentially as the parent who has to teach my kids, do you know what I mean? There is an so interesting. You know, that's
0: a very important role. You know? Oh, a lot totally. Of don't even think about that. And when I see parents, like, there's this Instagram that I follow, and it's like this Asian family, East Asian family, and like the the little daughter, I think she's around two, and she's like playing around with her books and stuff. And she was reading this book called Anti Racist Baby. And I'm like, that's cool. Like, when I see parents who are creating that space um, with their kids, I feel a glimmer of hope. Mm hmm. But I do think that um, it's a tough, tough situation. And obviously, it is a tough situation because these things don't end overnight
1: you know what to kind of like try and maybe finish on a little bit of a positive note I got very I don't think I'm saying this on the podcast probably because it's mortifying but I got very into reading like young adult new adult books recently I don't know if I was saying this anyway I fell down a huge like rabbit hole of it one of my friends sent me a load of recommendations I was blitzing through them blazing through them I read about 30 books in two weeks um And I was saying to my husband, like, I was reading them on my Kindle because my thing was like, all right, I don't want to be caught reading this in public, basically. I don't necessarily believe in guilty pleasures, or I'm trying not to. But this is one of those things where I was like, I'm not going to be advertising that this is the, the smut that I'm reading. But I was saying to my husband, it's so enlightening reading books where consent is so front and center and that diversity is like... Almost by the by, everyone is being represented. Like you've got a, you've got a diverse cast, but you've also got characters with disabilities being represented. Not everybody is just able-bodied. The ableism is not present at all, basically. And um, you've got you know LGBTQ plus representation as just as just the norm. Mm. And I was just like, oh my god, this is incredible! Like there was nothing like this. We had Twilight or we had Fifty Shades of Grey both of which are hugely problematic in their own way. And so I was saying this to my husband. I was like, it's just, it's really fascinating. And he was like, well, yeah, we've got to consider now it's women your age who are writing these books. So they are writing about the wake-up call that they've had. And, oh, actually, I never had books about consent. Consent is really important to me. I'm going to make sure that the books I'm writing represent that. And maybe that is, you have to take the time to align where you are in the life cycle, what impact am I having? The impact that I, as, you know, an almost 30-year-old have is different to the impact or the action that a 17-year-old has because they are coming up at a different cusp of it yeah. than I am. So Yeah,
0: I do hope so. I think the challenge we have is that, you know, you had, um, what was it that you had? Like Woodstock and, you know, mm. all the boomers now were liberal when they were young. Yeah, that's true and so something happens where it's like they're like no doors closed (laughs) so all the all the boomers or i mean there were a significant significant amount of boomers that were you know anti-vietnam war smoking weed living their lives went to schools that were like multicultural you know but now they don't want to live in neighborhoods that are multicultural Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's kind of the fear that I have where, you know, I do think like, yeah, there are a bunch of like liberal millennials who, and I hope just not liberal in like the superficial things, you know, and and obviously we do want to be positive, but even seeing something like Juneteenth in the US becoming a federal holiday.
1: But critical race theory being banned from...
0: Critical race theory being banned, you know, continuing like negative outcomes for African-Americans in the US. But like, you know, it's so performative. Mm -hmm. And then on LinkedIn, everybody's posting about Loving Day. I don't know if you've got a lot of those posts in your LinkedIn.
1: Uh, Do you know what? I had, and I hadn't really made the connection because Loving came out as a film a couple of years ago. And I would have thought that that was when... So sorry, just for a quick context. uh, Context loving the lovings were a family in was it i don't even know what text uh, what state it was um
0: i don't know what state it, it was but they were, the the first... lovings were a family and they were the first um couple that were allowed legally allowed to interracially marry and then so you got all these posts on linkedin celebrating loving day and i'm like yeah that's all well and good but if you're going to get on linkedin and be racist and then say you've got children that are people of color or you've got children children of color children you know it's like this is all a distraction yeah this is not cool you can't say somebody said like oh yeah if you you know people turn around and say oh I've got friends that are black you know like if somebody challenges them and they're like I've got friends that are black they're like no you don't <laughs> you yeah, yeah. black friends. You know a black person.
1: You know a black person. Does that black person actually like hanging around you? Like, <laughs> yes, exactly. Possibly not.
0: But now people are so shameless that they're turning around, be like, "I've got children of color." Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So that's why I'm like, "All right, cool, guys. You know, how do we kind of move forward on this stuff a bit and make it a bit more tangible?" Because it's—I don't know if it's just a social media space that we see, and things are moving forward elsewhere. But on social media, it's getting really murky and so yeah fingers crossed
1: <sighs> anyway on that note share the podcast with a friend we'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it do you think that cha- things are changing for the better have you facilitated any kind of change in your group have you had those uncomfortable conversations are you posting on LinkedIn about it let us know we're on social media at Jules Phoebe and thank you for listening thank you
0: bye bye